This is I Hear Things for Friday, January 21st, 2022. This is take three, where I say 2022. The oversimplified superstring hit incubation theory of podcasting. I did get that right in all three takes. Now, I'm not a huge hot spicy take person. If I have a spicy take on something that's in the news or that somebody else wrote, I sit on it for a while. It's usually served up at room temperature, not at the hot, spicy level. I like to let its flavors develop for a few days, like that timpano that they make in the movie Big Night. So I didn't drop a hot, spicy take immediately about the Bloomberg article from a couple of weeks ago. Podcasting hasn't produced a new hit in years. And I will link to that and everything else that I referenced today in the show notes. Uh, And I didn't drop a hot, spicy take about that article, even though it referenced some of our data to make its point. It referenced our last uh, top 50 U.S. podcast ranker. No, I buried my initial response under the bed. That initial response was indeed spicy hot, I will say. One of the things that I reacted to the most strongly in the piece was this quote. This trend vexes executives and producers across the podcasting industry, who worry that they're wasting a lot of money on new shows. Now, I talk to podcasting executives all day long for my job. They don't seem particularly vexed to me. I mean, most of them seem to be really happy to be in the podcasting business and not the insert flailing media here business. It also wasn't a great use of that particular data point, that ranker of our top 50 U.S. podcasts, Because that particular ranker aggregates a four-quarter rolling average. And those kinds of rankers tend to mask velocity, things that are moving quickly. But no hot spicy takes for this podcast. We are going to serve up some timpano for this newsletter, which, by the way, is actually called timbalo for you movie nerds. And it's often made with pigeon. Mmm, pigeon. Tastes like french fries. After a few nights marinating on this article... I don't think the article's wrong. I think it's unfair for a couple of reasons. And I don't think it's wrong that there is a problem. But it is wrong about what the problem is. So let's tackle all three of those. Let's manja. First, it's unfair. The top 50 ranker that the author used, as I mentioned, it's a good indicator of the biggest shows for a year period, a rolling four-quarter period, like I said. Now, because we're rolling four quarters together, it's going to mask rapidly rising podcasts and even rapidly declining podcasts. The leading or trailing quarters of that four quarter average will continue to cast a shadow on that entire rank, right? Now, I will say that clients of our podcast consumer tracker also see the unique quarter by quarter reach figures, so they have a better sense of velocity. And so, When you look at it quarter by quarter, you do get to see the fast risers and the rapid decliners. Uh, The podcast Smartless, for example, it's doing a lot better than the Bloomberg-cited ranker suggests. It's just been doing better lately. Now, this doesn't change the fact that for the one-year period that that ranker covers, most of the top podcasts by audience reach have been around for a few years. Now, we do sample every single day for that particular report. Well, 360 days a year at least. So we're not missing things. We're not missing binge drops or things that come out late in a quarter. There's no temporal effect on our sample frame for you nerds out there. I am one. 
We're catching everything that people name, and I mean everything. And most people mostly name the most popular podcasts as what they listened to in the last week. And those have actually been fairly steady over the last couple of years or so of the Podcast Consumer Tracker. Now, what's more unfair about this article is the assertion that this vibrant list of 50 big podcasts is emblematic of a hits problem in podcasting. Let's look at the top movies from last year. I'll give you the top 10. Spider-Man, Shang-Chi, Venom, Black Widow, notice the theme, F9, 9, Eternals, No Time to Die, which was the 25th Bond movie, A Quiet Place 2, Ghostbusters Afterlife, and Free Guy. One original movie, four sequels, and Marvel, 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 Marvel. Now, congrats to Disney, but does this list even remotely look like the list of a non-vexing industry? I'd be vexed. And if you go even further down that list, from the top 10 down to the top 20, top 30, it's sequels, movies based on existing properties, and remakes. Now, is it fair to say that the movie industry hasn't produced a new hit in years? No. All of the above movies are new movies but they are familiar at the same time, and I will get back to that towards the end of the podcast. But it certainly supports a thesis that it says it's genuinely hard to break new original content in any medium. Look at the last year in television. There's a much longer list at Variety that I'll link to, but let me name some of the top shows here. NFL Sunday Night Football, NFL Thursday Night Football, NFL Monday Night Football, This Is Us, The Masked Singer, Grey's Anatomy, more NFL football, Equalizer, 911, The Bachelor and The Bachelorette, tied for you gender studies uh, people. Law and Order, Organized Crime, Chicago PD, Chicago Fire, 911 Lone Star, Law and Order SVU, Chicago Med, FBI. Uh, I could go on and on and on here. So here's my pitch for a new television show Football but played by policemen. An arsonist sets a section of a stadium on fire, killing a whole squad of college students on their way to a singing competition, including two who were going to get married. With the help of a teenage genius, one man or one woman hunts the killer. Nailed it. Now, there's not much new in that list either. There's Equalizer, which is a remake of a TV show that was also remade into soon-to-be three movies and Big Sky, which is based on a very successful series of books. The rest of those shows are pretty long in the tooth. Did you know that there are 21 seasons of The Voice? Did you know there are 26 seasons of The Bachelor? Is anyone still single? And this brings us to music. I talked a lot about how many younger fans are leaving the broadcast radio pool in the last episode of this podcast. My Edison research colleague, Larry Rosen, also published some data shortly after that in a Radio Inc. article uh, called Music Radio, A Kingdom of Gold. Uh, And in that article, some of the data he shared showed that the two biggest losers in relative share among radio formats over a 10-year period were both contemporary music formats, rhythmic hit radio and pop hit radio. In Larry's words, it is not an exaggeration to say that contemporary music is in a crisis at American radio, and if this trend cannot be reversed or at least halted, 
there may be vast implications. But that is not the end of this particular rabbit hole. Uh, this week, uh, a writer named uh, Ted Gioia wrote a long, interesting newsletter article called Is Old Music Killing New Music? And he looked at some recent MRC Billboard data on the share of current music, in other words, music less than 18 months old, versus catalog music, which is all the older stuff. For the first time in the 14-year history of this measurement, current music declined from 35% of streamed music to 30% of streamed music. And he also notes, and I'll quote him here, just consider these facts. The 200 most popular tracks now account for less than 5% of total streams. It was twice that just three years ago. And the mix of songs actually purchased by consumers is even more tilted to older music. The current list of most downloaded tracks on iTunes is filled with the names of bands from the last century, such as Creedence Clearwater and The Police. Now, he goes on in this article to draw together several other disparate but fascinating trends like declining Grammy ratings, and he concludes that the music industry has lost its ability to discover and nurture young talents. Now, I'm not going to disagree with him here without further study. I will say, though, that many of the things that we research show that our recent media habits are tilted more towards the familiar and the comfortable, like the hottest new format in music, vinyl records. Now, you might call it a flight to comfort during these whatever-the-hell-these-times-are times. Whether it's secular or cyclical isn't really germane to this discussion. The point is that for the now, we are listening to a lot of older music. We're watching familiar movie franchises and perhaps even listening to more familiar podcasts. All of this is to say that singling out podcasting here as unable to produce new hits does warrant a little scrutiny of other hit-producing media, which makes the criticism a little unfair. It's also kind of wrong. It's not completely wrong. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here other than to say that unlike the media that I've already talked about here, podcasting, it's it's barely in its terrible teens. It's just now asking for the keys to the car. Now, there are more people who don't listen to podcasts regularly than do listen. So I'm not going to make any kind of a blanket statement here about what podcasting can or cannot do. I don't think we've really seen what podcasting can or, can or cannot do. The Bloomberg piece also uses just one criterion for hit, what our four-quarter uh, four ranker measures, the podcasts with the broadest reach among all American weekly podcast consumers, 18 plus. Now, there are other ways to look at these data, right? For instance, by gender, by age, by ethnicity, and our data set also provides that. When you focus your lens a little bit, there are new shows popping up all over the place. It's just really, really hard to build a show that appeals to the majority of podcast listeners. We are all our own special snowflakes. There are also other criteria, like looking at the performance of shows in various psychographic and behavioral clusters. For instance, was Mad Men a hit? I don't know if you watched Mad Men. I did. Was it a hit? Well, to a certain strata of TV viewer, it was a huge hit. That's all people would talk about from week to week. But ratings-wise, eh, it's generally not much better than 2 million viewers on its best night. In its last season, only the series finale crested a 1.0 share in the Nielsen ratings. That put it right there with American Pickers, a similar hit that wouldn't qualify as a hit. 
And finally, the kind of wrongness of this particular take glosses over not just podcasting's degree of difficulty as a medium, but the degree of difficulty of those particular top 50 shows the article quoted to remain podcasting's hits. I mean, again, look at some of those titles. Once you get past Rogan, who's kind of its own solar system, uh, and The Daily, which again, The Daily is uh, something that sounds familiar, right? It's the New York Times as a it has a tone that is not completely alien to you, and it's coming from a voice and a, a publication that you know. But you, you go down that list a little bit more. Crime Junkie, This American Life, My Favorite Murder, and keep going. In the same position where the movie industry gives us a ninth movie to mine Vin Diesel family means from, or the music industry gives us more Drake, the podcast industry gives you Ira Glass making wry observations in a closet for an hour. The top 50 list here is a wildly creative and vibrant list of shows. I mean, could two true crime-obsessed non-celebrity women claim and keep the third spot in TV ratings for a year? Is there anything like Lore or The Moth on, well, anything? Is there anything like them? This top 50 list is not a vexation. It's a miracle. But even with all that, even with the parts of the Bloomberg article that were unfair, even the parts that were kind of wrong, there's one last thing to say about this not making new hits critique. Ultimately, it's rightish. Now, it doesn't invalidate the claim that podcasting isn't producing tons of new hits to point out that other media also struggle with this. It just makes it more truer. I'm not smart enough to pen an entire missive here on the hit is dead, quote unquote. I don't think Microsoft would have bought Activision Blizzard if hits were dead. I think there are some hits there. The hit is different. And maybe the hit is having a down couple of years. Now, if it is the case, as it seems to be, that the top 200 hits were responsible for half as many streams in 2021 as they were in 2018, you could, I suppose, claim that the record industry isn't finding great new talent, or you could claim that the long tail has just swamped the whole snake. And I'm not saying either one of those are necessarily wrong, but I do want to point out another factor, and it's going to sound like I'm saying that new music is a lot worse than old music. I mean, I am a little bit, but, but stay with me. In another life, I used to do the music testing for what was, at the time, the largest pure play radio company uh, in America, in the world, actually. And doing this involved hundreds of nights all over the world, playing hundreds of thousands of eight-second snippets of songs for thousands and thousands of listeners. These eight-second snippets, the hook of the song, was the segment of a song that provided the shortest distance from I hear this to I know this and I like this. Now, in my life, I have heard millions of song hooks. This is not hyperbole. I'm very good at math. Millions. And I can give you two of the biggest ingredients for the success of these hooks. Melody and harmony. Now, does a hit need both? Not necessarily. Does it need at least one? It's pretty hard to have a hit if the hook lacks both of these. I mean, it's not impossible. Sabotage by the Beasties has a terrible hook. But that's an outlier. It's not the norm. Now, I don't think the current crop 
of current pop songs are as melodic or as harmonic as, say, the Hot 100 from 30 years ago. But I'm not making a value judgment here. You don't need melody. And I think there is less of it in today's currents, which I just told you are performing worse than ever. Uh, And then you have harmony, the voices singing together to make the whole greater than the sum of the parts. Again, you don't need harmony, but without harmony, we wouldn't have the eagles or bone thugs. Now, again, there are outliers, but if you don't have either melody or harmony, your would-be hit starts at a disadvantage. So let me present my oversimplified super string hit incubation theory. Oh, shit. I think there is a concept of melody and harmony that apply to the hits in any medium. Melody is the thing that makes a new song quickly singable, or any new hit quickly familiar. There might be a quadrillion songs on Spotify, but there aren't a quadrillion melodies. The melody is the familiar or almost familiar handle that you can grab onto when you're presented with something new. Don't know if you like this new show about crime scene investigation in Miami? Well, did you like CSI? Then you'll at least start CSI Miami or CSI Vegas knowing the melody, if not the words. The movie Hobbs and Shaw might not carry the Fast and Furious moniker, but again, you know the melody. Why was Smells Like Teen Spirit such a huge song when it it could have been just another angsty grunge fest or a punk mosh fest? Because it sounded like more than a feeling by Boston. It was angry, but it was familiar first, even though it was new. The melody of a hit is that thread that is already familiar, or soon familiar, of a thing that's new to you. In Another Another Life, I taught rhetoric to first-year students at the main campus of Penn State. And in rhetoric, we refer to a thing called the known new contract. If you start an argument in familiar turf, you can then introduce the new part of the argument on firmer footing. It's the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. It's kind of like this podcast. Now, if the melody in my oh shit construct is the familiar hook of a potential hit, the harmony is getting people to sing it together. Velocity requires synchronicity. Not just that we're all consuming a particular thing, but that we're generally doing it synchronously. Did you watch Tiger King? Of course you did. Did you watch Tiger King season two? No, you did not. At least I did not. Now, was Tiger King good? Eh, it was bananas. But on the grand scale of documentaries, it wasn't exactly Shoah or the Thin Blue Line. But we all watched it at the same time because we were all sent home from our jobs that week and we were cold and frightened and starved for connection and we needed to feel like we were part of the same life as our friends and families and co-workers that were very quickly all taken away from us at about the same time. This is why the all-time ratings champs on TV are sporting events, live finales, and award shows. These are forced, synchronous events. It's why simultaneously releasing Dune in theaters and on HBO Max killed its box office. There was no shared urgency to see it. In current music, too, it isn't just the music textbook definition of harmony that's lacking. It's the oh shit definition. Now, my son, for instance, loves music. And he stayed home from school for over a year. He still hasn't been to a dance. 
He's barely had football games to be in a marching band for. The biggest songs in your life are weighted heavily towards the ones you heard in high school because all of your friends listened to them and you played them and listened to them over and over together. And that's been missing. My son has developed the most incredible music taste you'll ever hear from a 17-year-old, incredibly eclectic and diverse, because it largely blossomed without that shared experience, without all of that synchronous listening. It, it's now its own unique strand of music DNA. And so now, 20 minutes in, at last, we come back to podcasting. Podcasting is, by its very definition, a medium that largely lacks harmony. When you can listen to a podcast anytime, there's very little compunction to listen to one at any given time. They're always there, convenient, but rarely urgent, asynchronous. And it also currently, though not by definition, I would argue, as a medium, often lacks melody. The whole medium is new to so many people, and even for veteran listeners, there isn't exactly the equivalent of NCIS New Orleans or Thursday Night Football or the Traveling Wilburys, that thread of familiarity that telegraphs to you immediately, if you like this, you will like that. Even some of the biggest hits of podcasting are not easily explainable to a friend. And that's part of why there's such a spate of celebrity podcasts right now. What's easier to describe to people? It's the Michelle Obama podcast or... It's the podcast that reveals the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. Now, that second podcast is really, really good, and I rarely miss it. But most times, even when I try to recommend it to others, I end up falling back on lengthy examples, like, you just have to hear it, or, I'm not even going to try. I'm not even trying one of those tiny Vienna sausage samples on a stick in the supermarket, let alone giving an hour to a completely unfamiliar concept of a podcast. Now, again, there are outliers to everything, but I would submit that so few of the top 50 podcasts look like the top 50 anything else that maybe the whole genre is currently an outlier. And yes, that makes it a beautiful thing. But if you want to have a hit, sure, you can cross-promote, you can buy ads, you can even pay influencers, and maybe some of that will work. Maybe all of that will work. But beyond the tactics of creating a hit, there is the meta-structure of a hit. How can you create a podcast that has melody, a quickly familiar strain, and harmony, a thing we need to listen to, not whenever and wherever, but tonight, on the way home? These are the tough questions that I submit creators need to think about. And only then does pigeon and pasta pie become Timbalo. I'm Tom Webster. This has been I Hear Things for Friday, January 21st, 2022. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.